This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Lisa Johnson, in for Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? We know climate change means more extreme weather, more fires, more floods. When disaster strikes, like the wildfire that burned most of Lytton, B.C. to the ground, parts of the narrative have become familiar. Tales of escape, tallies of loss. We hear much less about the long time after. Trauma and healing that can take years. And the researchers are studying now, knowing that climate-related disasters are getting more frequent. Mental health can be one of the casualties. Today, a special report from High River, Alberta, The river raged through the town in 2013 as part of the costliest flooding in Canadian history. Now, Canada is looking to learn from the community's experience and what it can teach the rest of us when trauma hits. What on Earth producer Molly Siegel has been working on this story. Hello. Hi, Lisa. The flooding in 2013. I remember hearing how it hit Calgary and the surrounding areas really hard. What did it look like in High River? It's so hard to describe it in just one word. 70% of the homes were flooded. And in some parts of town, cars were completely underwater. The water was that deep. So for perspective, more than 13,000 people were forced to leave their homes. They were forced to leave the town. And that's basically everyone who lived there. While this wasn't the first time that High River had flooded, the damage was just so much worse this time. That was eight years ago now. Why talk about this today? This started for me last fall when I came across some research by a public health expert named Katie Hayes. She works with the Climate Change Innovation Bureau at Health Canada. And in 2018, for her PhD research, she visited High River to learn about the lasting impacts of the flood on mental health. So by then, five years later, the influx of emergency response, so things like extra money for counselling, All of that had come and gone. And it was enough time for Hayes to see how things had unfolded. I wanted to look at a smaller community to have a better understanding of, you know, what sorts of mental health care or mental health provisions were already in place in a smaller, a rural and remote community. And so I really wanted to look at the longer term implications of the mental health experiences of people who'd experienced a flood And, you know, what happens when emergency response goes away? That's really interesting because usually when we talk about adapting to extreme weather, we treat it like it's a physical problem. You know, are we building on floodplains? It makes me wonder how ready we are for the mental health piece of climate change. Yeah, well, Hayes says this field is actually pretty new and that there's a lot more we need to learn. Her research on mental health will be out this fall. It's part of a federal government report. And this is the first time that this report will have a chapter on mental health. So that question you asked, Lisa, how ready are we for this part of climate change? That's something Hayes and the federal government are thinking about right now. It's the identification that there are mental health needs and there are mental health impacts from our changing climate and that the term health includes our mental health. And so we do really need to showcase What are the physical health? What are the mental health? And what are the community health implications of climate change? Um, So for me, it's very exciting to have this this chapter come out to really shine a light on the mental health needs and to showcase a lot of these case stories like uh, the High River case study, for example. You went to High River. We'll be hearing directly from people there in your documentary. But big picture, what are some of the issues that she identified? 
Some that stand out are a lack of flood insurance, and that really was a challenge for a lot of people. Honestly, that's its own story. People also told Hayes about their anxiety. Many people would get worried or scared even five years later around the anniversary of the flood or when it would rain or when the water was high. But what really interests me is that High River also has lessons of what did help the community. You know, it's not only about the negative impacts, but it's important to reflect on some of the positive impacts that can help us have a better understanding of what adaptation can mean, particularly in a small community and the town of High River there is such a strong sense of community. And many folks talked about this feeling of altruism, of neighbors sharing resources, of people really coming together to support one another. And that was often mixed in with the grief, the loss, and the damages that they had experienced. And it's that part of Hayes' research that made me want to visit High River to see what about the community brought people together through this. Okay, let's hear it. Thanks, Molly. Thanks, Lisa. I was living in Alberta in 2013. I remember the news. Neighborhoods submerged in water. Homes destroyed by mold. Fights with insurance companies. But there's another chapter I want to learn about. All the stuff that happens when the berms are built and the homes are remediated. How the fabric of the community changes. The air feels hot and smells sweet. Birds sing and white fluff from cottonwood trees dusts the edge of the path on the berm I'm walking on. So we'll walk a little bit here. Then David Robertson down, is a minister uh, at the United Church here, um, along with his wife, Susan. We walk along the banks of the Highwood River. And they just finished the last segment of the berm this past year. And this is the berm that we're walking on? Yes. Yes. So this is what's protecting the downtown. So it's one meter in elevation higher than the water level was in 2013. Everyone tells me the river gets its name from the cottonwoods and not the water. Across that water... On the other side of the bridge into town, there's what looks like a park. But to people who lived here before the flood, it was Wallaceville, a neighborhood with birdhouses on trees and paving stones in yards. From a distance, to a newcomer's eye like mine, it looks like a grassy meadow with trees. That, along with the berm, are just a couple ways the town has changed physically to make room for the water. It looks so peaceful, and it really is, but during spring runoff, the mountain streams function like a funnel system. A funnel system that normally brings a lot of water in May or June. But eight years ago, there was heavy rain, more than anyone was prepared for. The water would have been over our head where we're standing right now, and we wouldn't be standing here. We would be washed downstream and and probably wouldn't survive. I can't blame the river for doing what it does. It, it just had to do what it had to do. The water had to go somewhere. And we all got caught up in its wake. Susan Lukey, David's wife, is the other minister at the United Church. And on June 20th, 2013, she wasn't expecting things to get so bad. We actually thought that we had had our high water in May. 
it really was the day of June 20th uh, when we realized the water was starting to come up. We were listening to reports, uh, the reports that I remember hearing saying that the water would peak about 11 a.m., but then the water keeps coming. People were stacking sandbags around the church, but the water was rising quickly. One of Susan and David's sons was with them that day. David decided to leave with him, and Susan was just behind them. It was only about 15 minutes later, I was just getting my purse, getting my final things, and I turned around and the water had gone up three feet, just in a matter of moments. The water was so high on the doors, I couldn't have physically pushed them open. There was so much water pressure uh, to get out. The doors didn't open. Susan was trapped. She looked for higher ground. It was just starting to... In the church sanctuary, Susan and I step up onto the stage. It was just starting, it, about an inch of water came over the, the whole platform area. She points to a ledge at the back of the platform. And it was up on that ledge that I spent the night. I settled myself up there for the night and, and watched the church flood. I could look out the windows and there was a deer stuck on the hill out behind and so all night I kept, I'd get up and I'd check and the deer was still there. So the deer and I sort of spent the night together. In the morning when the deer was gone, I knew that I could leave the building. Susan left the church at 5.30 the next morning. The phone lines were down. So she started her journey home to reunite with her family. But walking in even ankle deep water was incredibly hard. It was so thick with the silt and that, that the pressure uh, was just incredible. All around the town, thick and heavy water. By the end of that day, more than 70% of homes would be affected by it. Almost everyone living there was forced to leave. Even the neighborhoods no one had expected, including David and Susan's. What Susan didn't know as she left the church was that her home had also flooded. Her sons and David would not be there to greet her. That was a hugely uh, traumatic thing for, for us being separated. Cherry Marrero and I find a shady spot in a park. Her story is one of separation, but not the way you might expect. When the flood hit High River, Cherry was far from home chatting with my cousin-in-law, and she told me that what happened. Don't expect you'll see your, your, um, all your things again, like they're gone. She'd recently given birth to her baby son and flew back with him to the Philippines to reunite with the rest of their family, her husband and their daughter. Yeah, we're in the process of getting our permanent residency. So it's, it's pretty high stakes to come back. It's, yeah, it's like, oh, we're almost closed. Then if I gave up, then I have to go back to zero again. So, yep, just it is what it is. Go back. <laughs> Her husband and daughter didn't have residency in Canada then. So Cherry returned to High River with her son, all by herself. There wasn't much to arrive to. Her stuff, destroyed by the flood. Her apartment, uninhabitable. All I need is, uh, I need a place to stay. I need a roof on my head. That's all. But when the night comes and then my baby's sleeping, I, I feel so sad and 
alone. <laughs> yeah. I thought it's not important <laughs> during that time. But yeah. Oh. <laughs> you make me cry. <laughs> Sorry. Cherry didn't have much support at first either. English isn't her first language. Eventually, she got up the courage to ask for the basics, like diapers and food. But for her, it was the other stuff, counseling or emotional support, that wasn't there. It's hard to go back. Those emotions. <laughs> it's all coming back. Yeah, I think that's, that's the one lacking during that time. I don't know where to go. But I survived. <laughs> As the Highwood River spilled its banks and overtook the town, survival was the motivation that day. Liz Vigueras had been thinking about this too. Not for herself, but for someone else. Well, you know, that morning was a very weird morning for me because I was uh, preparing myself to go to the job like a normal day. And I received a phone call from one of my friends, Mexican. The friend had just had a baby. Liz recalls her friend saying she was tired. She would put a mattress on the floor, turn off the phone, and go to sleep. Not long after, Liz's office closed, floodwater quickly submerging the town. Her mind jumped to her sleeping friend and the baby. She drove over, but found the street barricaded. The water was very high levels, probably 50 centimeters already. So I just decided to walk inside that <laughs> watery area. At that moment when I arrived to her place, uh, the water in, in her area was like uh, probably to my knees. Liz woke her friend up, scooped up the baby. But when we came out from the house, the water was on our hip. So they waded through the water. Imagining this is wild to me, just trying to walk with the pressure of that water while keeping the baby up above your hips. Lisa's van was stranded, but a large truck drove by and saw them just in time. So we find a very nice guy, a good Samaritan passing with these monster trucks. And he put us inside the cabin and he drive us to the Carson's. Carlson's is a local restaurant where they found safety, and I'll get back to that later. But this kind of help, friends waking friends up, strangers rescuing strangers, motorboats grabbing cats and dogs, tractors and front-end loaders plucking people off the tops of buildings, those things were happening all across town. For Cherry Marrero, far from her family in the Philippines, the kind acts of others were a lifeline. There was a lady from Red Cross who helped us that time to get um, financial support from, from Red Cross. Um, but I don't remember the money, but I remember is when she hugs me. <laughs> um, sorry. It's just I will never forget that, that feeling when she hugged me. That hug is telling me it's going to be okay. Cherry shares another story with me. She was walking through town after the flood, carrying groceries, when a woman driving by saw her and stopped. She asked me if she could give me a ride. So those simple acts of kindness from people that you don't know really impacted my life. Like, if, if, if you are in need and you, are, you don't know if you can ask for help and someone will 
he'll laugh at you or what like I'm so hesitant to ask for help when someone asks you are you okay like I don't know it feels good you're not invisible mm. someone is noticing you being noticed in this way for Cherry meant feeling less alone feeling supported when I reflect on her story it's remarkable to me she didn't have to stay in High River to get her permanent residency she could have moved back to Calgary where she'd been living before she had friends there, a support system. I just can't explain. I'm happy being in High River. I don't know. <laughs> it's help from strangers that would get David Robertson through the cleanup. Once the water subsided, he was allowed back into his neighborhood. But when he returned, things were unrecognizable. Buildings off their foundation, river rock all over the place. Uh, people's basement contents vomited onto the front lawn of their home. At David's home, people started showing up. First, there was the guy who walked in through the back gate. He was one big, strapping young guy. I turned around and this guy had hauled the 40-gallon hot water tank heater on his back by himself up the flight of stairs around to the front of the yard, dropped it there, and he was gone to the next house. Then there was the white van that rolled up on their street. And they opened up the back of the van. It was full of Tim Horton's coffee and donuts. And that never tasted so good. Like, just to, just to sit and, and sip on a hot cup of coffee for a few minutes while I watched one of the volunteers on the front steps gingerly, very carefully cleaning... Susan's permanent teaching certificate that somehow had surfaced in the debris. She said, I thought she might like this. It's still remarkable how it's emotional. Like, I still feel the tears around that. Um, and I think that's the way through. With every safe moment where we can express emotion around what we experienced, it adds to the capacity to adapt. It's what helps us heal. The way David and Susan describe it, it's a journey. The difficult stuff, the cleanup, the tears are part of that. There are things that are going to happen in our lives that we have no control over. But what we do have is the choice of what comes out of that. I, I think I cried every day on my way to work for the first two years after the flood. But that's what got me through. Getting through wasn't straightforward. There were their sons to care for, their marriage to keep healthy, and of course, a congregation of people to look after who had also experienced their own trauma. Susan knows she did not do it alone. I think we live in such an individualistic society that it has made self-care the term, but that's not how people work. We need to care for each other and be cared for by each other. I think we have to have compassion for ourselves and be willing to receive that care. But I can't take care of myself. It's okay to lean into each other. We're not designed by nature as human beings to be alone. And the disaster has highlighted that wisdom for me time and time again that part of our job 
as leaders is to foster that kind of cascading care. When David speaks those words, cascading care, I think of Lee's. The day the Highwood River breached its banks and washed across High River, it set into motion a chain reaction. First, Lee's rescued her friend. And then... Uh, Good Samaritan passing with these monster trucks. That day I was coming back from the west side of town where I'd helped a couple of friends, and we had to evacuate that side of town. That's the Good Samaritan with his monster truck. His name is Bill Fowler. Lise and I meet Bill at Carlson's. We sit on the patio. It's sunny out. Bill's wearing sunglasses so shiny I can't see his eyes. This is the first time he and Lise are meeting in eight years. And I have to be honest, how low-key Bill is about this really surprises me. We just helped them into the truck and we got to... Bill helped relay Lise, her friend, and the baby from the truck to the restaurant, carefully in deep, resistant water. As an outsider, it's an incredible story. People taking a lot of risk and extra time to keep each other safe. Yeah, and we were up on the, up in the balcony. There were people on the roofs all around downtown here. Mm-hmm. And, and there were people that came to town with machinery and just selflessly gave that machinery. But for Bill, it's not a big deal. Everybody took the time. What we did as a group was reflected 10,000 times that day in High River. People just help people. That's, that's what the community's all about. I remember that my husband was really upset because I lost my van too, right? You can buy um, a van any other day, but you cannot buy a human life, yeah. right? You cannot bring them back. So I said to my husband, well, I have to make the choice. If lost your van or lost my friend and the baby. The day of the flood was just the beginning of something for Lee's. Though she and her family were forced out of their home, in the temporary trailer camp of Saddlebrook, Lee's would look to support others. There were movie nights and a playground, but Lee's wanted to create something that Mexican families like hers could relate to. So I create a dance program with a folkloric um, dance, Mexican dance. She says learning and performing dance, like what you're hearing now, helped people cope with the trauma of the flood. Vibrant dresses, twirling colors, energy in the movement. It's invigorating. And give us this recovery, because give us time to get active, keep our minds busy, and say to the community, hey, we are a group of Mexicans here dancing for you. Uh, Ireri means in the... um, in our, it's part of a Purepecha tongue, um, languages in my country is from Michoacan, and the word means sweet smile. Lise keeps that sweet smile alive to this day. Creating resiliency is one of the goals that we got. Study for ourselves, because when we start practicing, the resilience came from the inside or us to the outside. And then bringing this joy to the people because the dresses are very colorful. The children were dancing with heart and soul. The joy that came from this was a bomb, healing the wounds of the flood, but also building something new. High River was changing, growing, strengthening in many ways. Well, I think that High River had been working really hard in the mental health. 
One of the initiatives that the town started, it was How's Your Five? How are your love inside and with others? How is your work? How do you sleep? How are you eating? Those questions called How's Your Five were created to help with recovery after another disaster, a tornado that hit Joplin, Missouri in 2011. Asking, how are you sleeping? might tell you how someone actually is, better than the question, how are you? Groups providing social services in High River worked together to license this tool after the flood. So sometimes we'll start our staff meetings with that. or we'll Groups start. like Marianne Dixon's. I'd say, hey, everybody, just tell me one thing. Pick one, whatever you want. And, and it, it just encourages conversation. After the flood, Marianne's organization, Wild Rose Community Connections, saw how people were struggling. And we were finding the grocery store, the bank tellers, the hairdressers, we're all becoming very overwhelmed because that's where people were unloading. They'll stand at the grocery counter and this poor grocery clerk is fielding things like, oh, I don't know when I'm going to get in, you know, my insurance company is doing this. And so we thought, okay, well, let's create a way so that people can talk and have a place to talk. So that's why we came up with How's Your Five and made it a community thing. But that came after the challenges Marianne faced in the early days. She knew her clients would be at the temporary trailers at Saddlebrook. At first, when she showed up, she wasn't allowed in. Between the province, the federal government, and nonprofits from far and wide, she says the experience of navigating the aftermath of the flood was chaotic. Now, if a disaster happens again, Marianne says they'll manage it better. One of the messages we tried to get out there is um, nothing about us without us. Right? So it's our community, it's ours to rebuild. You folks are here to help us do that because that, that's your job, is that's what you do. Um, Marianne flips through a white binder. She tells me about the other ways people are dealing with mental health. One of the things that came out of that is something called safe spot. The idea is simple. If someone is struggling with something and needs a safe place to talk, an orange dot means the door is open. People inside have been trained on how to talk to someone going through a hard time and be able to say, hey, these are some of the resources you could use. High River also has a counseling center and if you can't afford it, it's paid for anyway. Donations cover that cost. The flood tore up the train tracks and covered the town in muck and silt. But after the cleanup, something different emerged, new conversations. That openness around mental health and mental health well-being that has just blossomed and we talk about it more, it's okay, and it's made a huge difference. People will say, I'm so glad I'm able to come and talk to somebody. Honestly, from the perspective of the natural disaster being the flood, um, you would be hard-pressed uh, if you were new to High River to know that anything like that had ever occurred. It's true. There are no obvious signs of the flood around town. Wallaceville, the neighborhood I mentioned earlier, no one lives there anymore. The houses are gone, and the grass has grown in. But look closely. There are vestiges of its past life. Little things, like how the trees line up along what I imagine were property lines. Trauma leaves scars. Recovery doesn't always mean things go back to what they were. But it can still make room for something new. Wallaceville is now a place for wild critters, people walking their dogs, and for the Highwood River to spill into 
without causing any harm. Related to our connection with the environment, with our planet, the capacity for human beings to adapt is going to be premised on the capacity of human beings to have their tears. And in my view, I feel we have a lot of tears yet to come over the properties that have been damaged, over the lives that have been lost. There needs to be tears and there needs to be room for that. After the tears, Cherry Marrero found ways to keep caring for the people and places around her. Sometimes we volunteer to clean up the high river. And I don't know, my husband told me, you're cleaning up the park and you're happy. I don't know, I'm just happy to give back to my community. Like, this is our place, we should take care of it. How people here relate to the river has also changed. Lise Figueres. I love nature. I came to visit a couple of times the river and have fun with my daughters, painting rocks and doing something fun there. But I never thought that the place could be dangerous if the level of water get up. I think that my perspective of the river is now seeing it with respect. That relationship, not just to the river, but the environment, is still evolving, says Susan Lukey. I think with the changing climate, we we human beings are created to be adaptive. We, we have our tears, and we grieve what we lose, and out of that then we find our creativity. We lean into each other for support, and we can adapt. The river is always in flux. For David Robertson to adapt, we have to grieve. But once we grieve, there's also hope. It's remarkable because we are here. <laughs> we have moved through it. We figured out how to live with this new expression of what our life is now. Those who have their tears, who understand the futility of that, will adapt very well. And for that, I'm really hopeful. We have an opportunity to adapt in a new way, to look at our world differently, to make different decisions. And I'm excited for that. In High River, I'm Molly Siegel. That's it for us this week. If you haven't given us a review yet, please do, and tell a friend while you're at it. We'd also like to hear from you for an episode we're working on. You've probably heard the phrase, new normal. But what does that mean in the changing climate? How have your summers changed? Hotter? Drier? More humid? We would love to hear from you. Send us a voice memo or email us, earth at cbc.ca. Thanks this week to the team, associate producer Amanda Bukowitz, producer Molly Siegel. Our engineer is Matthias Wolfson. Monisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Lisa Johnson, in for Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.